Uh, all right, welcome here. Uh, my name is Matt. Glad to have you here with us. Um, we are going to be in the book of Luke, uh, Luke 13. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can, you can grab it and open it. If ever uh, you forget your Bible or you just don't have a Bible, we have some on the tables as you enter. You're welcome to grab one of those. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, you're welcome to take one of those. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, but I'm going to pray for us, and then, and then we'll dive into our text today. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you, God, that we can uh, gather together, we can worship together, uh, we can pray together, and we can hear from you uh, through your word. And, and so I pray as we uh, sort of settle our hearts and minds, uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, open us up to receive everything um, that is here for us, and, and that may be different for each one of us. But I, I pray uh, that you would help us to uh, kind of put aside the things that have been distracting us or, or kind of captivating our minds and hearts this week. Uh, not that they are important, but Lord, that uh, we would recognize that hearing from you is most important and most helpful. And so I pray that that would happen uh, by your power and by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning uh, by telling you about a man named Brian Wallach. Uh, Brian Wallach and his wife, Sandra, uh, live in Washington, D.C. Uh, they are one of those people in Washington, D.C. that seem to be uh, connected, kind of in, in the Washington culture and all the stuff that's going on. Uh, they aren't politicians. Uh, in fact, Brian uh, was a federal prosecutor, uh, and his wife is also a lawyer, uh, but the reason that he came on my radar is that uh, when Brian was 37 years old, he was diagnosed with ALS. Uh, so here's a picture of uh, him and his wife. I think this is partway through his, his diagnosis. If, if you're not sure, ALS is a degenerative disease. It affects uh, the, the neurons in the body uh, that make it so that your brain basically can't talk to the rest of your body. You can't move uh, the way that you once did. It begins with you know, just motor skills being uh, affected, and then you can't walk. But it gets to the point where you can really no longer talk or swallow. Uh, about 5,000 people a year in the U.S. are diagnosed with ALS. In Canada, it's about 1,000. Uh, people with ALS usually die within two to three years of having the disease, uh, which, which makes it difficult, a difficult disease to advocate for. And so this is, this is sort of why Brian and Sandra... Uh, became well-known because they decided to use their connections in Washington and their experience to try to advocate for greater funding for ALS. And, and they, they did so quite successfully. Uh, from the time when Brian was diagnosed to about two years in, they had uh, established a nonprofit. They had pushed a bill through Congress that um, made possible $100 million a year of new funding for ALS research, which according to everyone, it was just like unheard of, that they could get this much done in that amount of time. Uh, so it was a great reason to celebrate, but of course, Brian, this whole time, he was suffering with this disease. Uh, in an inter interview, he described what it was like to have his body shut down around him. He said, there are times when I meet new people and they talk to me really slowly in single syllable words and I want to scream. Because ALS affects your body, but your mind doesn't affect your, your mind at all. So he can comprehend everything, he can hear everything, but it's, it's kind of like his body has become a prison. And this is true, not just of ALS, but for the, the hundreds of, of disabilities and illnesses that are out there. Lots of people feel this way. There's this cognitive impairment, 
physical uh, limitations, chronic pain. They don't all move as quickly as ALS, uh, but the end result is often the same, that people feel robbed of their agency, of their freedom, of all the things that God has given them. In, in fact, many people, whether you have sort of a diagnosed disease or condition or not, many of us feel trapped in a body that just doesn't quite work right. And, and the question that often comes up, uh, and it's a good question, is what is God's response to this? Uh, what should the church's response to this be, to this, this kind of suffering in our world? Well, the answers are sort of many. First and foremost, we need to recognize, of, of course, that every human being has dignity. Whether your, your mind or body works the way it should or works differently, whatever it is, we are all uh, creations made in the image of God, so we all deserve dignity and respect and care and love. Uh, but also, we should actively support medical research. God has given certain people very good brains to understand the complexity of the human body, and we need to give those people a lot of money, right? So they can research, so they can figure out how to make things better. That, that's a good thing. But we should also recognize that God's answer to disability isn't just physical healing, it's spiritual liberation, because the root cause of these problems is rooted in something much deeper than just the cells of our body. It it's, goes all the way down to the deformation of our soul. And we're going to see this in our text this morning. Our text this morning is um, a story where Jesus heals a woman who's been suffering with disability for 18 years. And the healing that we see here, it, it communicates to us a lot of significant things about the nature of of sin, our own sin, how the sins affected the world, the hope and the healing and freedom that Jesus can bring. And also at the end, there is a call for us to show compassion to others in the same way that, that God does for us. So a lot in here. We're going to just read through the story and then we'll uh, pick it apart kind of verse by verse. Um, I'm not going to put the verses on the screen to start with. If you have a Bible, feel free to read along or just listen. Uh, but then we'll put the verses on the screen as we work our way through it. So here's Luke 13, verse 10. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So that's God's word to us this morning. Uh, we're going to work our way through in three points. The first one is this. We are all in bondage. We are all in bondage. Uh, this woman was in real pain and real discomfort. This was a, a real physical uh, disability. You see it in verse 11. I'll just read it again. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself up. 
Uh, so the modern medical opinion is probably this woman had something called spondylititis deformans, which, which I'm told is basically when certain parts, certain vertebrae fuse together so that they, they can't bend anymore. So she was literally bent over and, and could not straighten herself up. You can imagine just the, the difficulty that this would pose in your daily life, especially at a time in, in the ancient world where there weren't all the you know, things, the easy accessibility or the help for certain physical disabilities. Whenever she wanted to see anyone, she would have to kind of contort her body. It would have been very difficult to work, probably socially. She was just shunned and ostracized because at the time people would have thought something was wrong with her. The curse of God was upon her. So this was a real physical disability. Uh, but according to Luke, who by the way uh, was a medical doctor, the person writing this is a doctor at the time, uh, he says that her physical condition had a spiritual cause. Uh, look at verse 11. He just says, she had a disabling spirit. And then in verse 16, Jesus says, this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years. So clearly a spiritual cause, even though physical ailment. So the question I think we need to be asking at this point, the natural question is, does this mean that all disabilities, all diseases are the result of spiritual attack? A few different answers. Number one, uh, not necessarily. Not necessarily. The very fact, for example, that one of the apostles was a medical doctor should tell us that there are physical reasons for diseases and that God values medical treatment. Uh, in fact, there's this interesting little exchange between Paul and Timothy. It's kind of an aside in one of his letters, but Timothy apparently has digestion issues. He has problems with his stomach. Maybe, you know, he has a wheat allergy. Maybe he needs to be on keto. I don't know what it is. Uh, but Paul's response, interestingly, to Timothy is not, you know, cast the demon uh, out of your stomach or pray for deliverance. He just gives some practical, physical advice. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So this just tells us that his response is not always only spiritual. He's giving some, I don't know if you call it medical advice, but it's just practical advice Thankfully, our, our medical advice has gotten better than just drink wine for whatever's ailing you. But the point is that God cares about our physical health, and that's a, that's a godly thing. For us to go to the doctor, get tests, get treatment, that's the common grace of God. So it's not necessarily the case that if you're sick, it's because of some spiritual thing. But, but clearly, Satan is sometimes involved. Um, the devil, he always wants to mess with us, afflict us, uh, do something to hinder our vitality of life, and physical suffering is part of his arsenal. Uh, the things that he, he does, or that he asks God if he can do in our lives. We see this in Job, right? With Job, a lot of sufferings, a lot of things that, that Satan does to Job. But one of them is, is boils. He's got boils, festering, pussy, itchy boils all over his body. He must have been excruciating. And Satan does that. For the same reason he does anything else in our lives, he wants for us to come to the point where we curse God. If we know God, we turn away from him or we never come to faith. He wants, um, he wants for us to have that kind of response. And so really, physical ailments can be the result of spiritual attack, but they are always a test of faith. And so the, the big picture of, of these kinds of physical conditions is that they have a deeper spiritual reality as, as the ultimate cause, as the reason that they are 
present and exist in our world. In fact, all disability, all disease has some element of a spiritual cause. And I say that because if you think about what it was like in the Garden of Eden, uh, it was a totally different reality. They weren't worried about disease. They weren't worried about disability. And the difference between that reality and our reality is not something physical. It's not something um, material, environmental. The, the big difference was spiritual. At the time, Adam and Eve, they lived uh, in the kingdom of God. Like everything in their environment, the reality was perfectly aligned with God himself. So that included every cell in their body. If they had kept living in the garden, nothing would have degenerated. They wouldn't have gotten old, no old age, no leukemia, no ALS, no heart failure. And so the thing that changed, though, wasn't a physical thing. It wasn't, you know, a uh, different in the environment that we look to. The, the causes that we look to explain disease weren't there. The, the only cause, the change, was a moral change, a spiritual change. They, they turned their back on God. They sinned. They disobeyed their creator, and from that, everything about the reality changed. In their own minds, hearts, bodies, even in the world around them, everything was impacted by the effects of sin. And we see this described in the book of Romans, where Paul is talking about, like, what did sin do to the world? Look at the language. Here's Romans 8.20. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So because of sin... The world is, has been subjected to futility. All of creation in bondage to corruption, our bodies, the whole world, everything we see around us is waiting to be redeemed from the curse of sin. So our passage today is not a parable. Like it actually happened. There was actually a woman. She actually got healed. But when we understand that sin is the true origin of all physical corruption, then when we see disease like this, Disability like this, it's a reminder of the true nature of the sinful heart. Even though we may not be afflicted in this way, physically, we are all in bondage to sin in some way. Certainly before faith, right? Humanity, this is, this is our reality. Um, we have a deformed soul. We have bent minds and hearts. We can't, we can't straighten ourselves up morally the way that we would want to. Like this woman, we're powerless we're powerless to straighten ourselves up. Like Brian Wallach, we're powerless to, to be liberated from this body where we feel imprisoned. We are trapped, some of us, in patterns of sin that cripple our lives, not physically, but emotionally, relationally. This is all the effect of sin. Which means, this is why it's important to understand this, which means that while efforts to cure disease and fund research are important, we need to do that. They aren't the full answer. Because even if we cure cancer and ALS and MS and any of the other diseases that, that bring such, such, uh, wreak such havoc on our world and on the people that we know, even if we do that, and I pray we do, it, it won't be the final answer. Because the people will be healed, but they need 
they need to be set free. They'll still be in bondage to the sin. So for us to understand ourselves as human beings, we need to recognize that, yes, there are physical conditions. Yes, we need to work hard to ameliorate them. We need to pray for healing. God can heal, but it's not just physical healing that we need. We need spiritual liberation. And the beautiful thing about this this, uh, story is that the woman gets both at the same time from the mouth of the Son of God. So it's it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does in our lives. So the first point, we are all in bondage. But secondly, we can be free in Jesus. We can be free is the language he uses. Look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. So this is a very real uh, Vivid picture of physical healing. The power of God to heal us is, we're showing it right there, but it's also a beautiful picture of the gospel, of the way that, that Jesus impacts our lives to bless us. The gospel is all about the love of God for us personally. And here we see Jesus take a personal interest in this woman. If you think about this woman's life, she was she was probably used to being overlooked. In that day, I mean, she was probably there every Saturday when they met for, for the Sabbath. She's probably there every week, but I doubt that many people really reached out to her. In that culture, it would have been very easy just to ignore her. And, and because of her stature, she would just be used to being overlooked. But here, Jesus, he sees her from across the room and he reaches out right away. Like he can tell that she's in distress and he just... Even just the act of, of calling her over, just think about that for this woman, how much that would have meant to her. It's a powerful thing when we have someone intentionally reach out to connect with us, to really know us, to speak into our lives, even, I mean, not just the Son of God, but just, just between people. It made me think of this, uh, this one thing that happened. It always left an impression on me. Kind of a funny thing. I was at this retreat, this pastor-elder retreat at Northview Community Church that we're connected with. And uh, I was there with, I think just the boys were with me. And there were a lot of people there we sort of knew but didn't really know that well. One of them was uh, a young adult. His name's Ethan. Uh, Maybe he was a teenager at the time. Uh, He was Jeff Bucknam's son. So if you remember Jeff, lead pastor there, his son. So we kind of knew him. So he came over and and he came to us. All My boys were there and he said, hey guys, uh, listen, later on, uh, we are going to go for crepes, all right? Like later on, like late, like at 10 o'clock at night. So it be after everything. We're going to go for crepes. There's the best crepes place in town. It's called AB Crepes. You guys should totally come. And so, you know, my boys are like, oh, this is exciting, right? Being invited by someone older. It's later. That's exciting too. Uh, I wasn't so excited because it was going to be late, but... But I thought that was, really, that was really nice of him, I thought. Maybe we'll do that. But then before he left, before he, like, he talked a little bit more, and then before he was going away, he said this. He said, listen, you might think that I only invited you to be nice, but I really want you to be there. Like later on, you're going to be like, I don't know if we should go. I'm inviting you. I want you to come and have crepes with us, okay? You guys going to be there? And we were like, yeah. Like I was a dad. And I felt really loved by this kid. He's like, well, he really wants me to be there? This is great. 
right? That's, that's what happens when you just get a personal connection. That, that moment was one that were my, oh, I felt good because that was the whole point. He wanted us to feel loved and feel good. And what I'm saying to you is that is like a tiny microcosm of the gospel where, where God reaches through time and history and, and cares about us. Like he reaches out to you personally to say, I know you, I see you, I love you. But the amazing thing about this is that we didn't even want God's attention. Like in that story I just told, we wanted this, I mean, the kids, someone they knew, they wanted the attention. That's not us and God. In our sin, we have our backs to God. We're not interested. We're like the kid uh, throwing a tantrum in Walmart, you know, who's like, I hate everyone. I hate you, mom. I hate this story. He wants to destroy everything. That's us in our sin. And sometimes in our tantrum, if you notice this with kids, they hurt themselves because they're flailing around and then they're crying because they're hurt, but they're also angry at the same time. And what a loving parent does is scoops them up, cares for them, loves them, helps them to know that they are loved, that they are known, maybe also will discipline them if they're having a tantrum, but, but it's that intentional aspect, that relational aspect that is a huge component of the gospel, that we can know today, here and now, that God knows us, that God loves us. We see this in Christ that this is how he interacts with people. He didn't just notice this woman. He called out to her. He brought her over and then, and then he helped her. He brought healing and freedom into her life, which is also exactly what the gospel does for us. That we aren't just known by God, but we're, we're saved, we're accepted, we're redeemed. We're freed from the spiritual bondage in our lives by the power and the love of God. In fact, this is what Jesus said he would do. When he began his ministry, a couple years before, in another synagogue, when he started things off, he opened up the scroll of Isaiah and look, look what he read. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see all the language there kind of wrapped up together. There's, there's liberty, there's healing from physical suffering, from spiritual suffering. This is what Jesus is all about. This is the gospel. And these events in his ministry, like this little moment with this woman, he's there to really care for her. But really what he's doing, he's foreshadowing the greater healing and the greater liberty that will come for everyone who believes in his name through the cross. That's what he's doing here. He's, he's, he's loving this woman, but he's also putting on display the gospel love that God has for humanity. So let me, let me ask a couple of questions just to help us kind of dig even deeper into the nature of this love and what Jesus is doing here. Uh, first question, what exactly happened when Jesus spoke? Like when he said these words to this woman, what, what happened? Like in the cosmic spiritual realms, well, what happened is that he interrupted Satan's destructive influence on this woman's life, right? Satan had wanted this woman to stay bent over her whole life. He wanted her to be, to be physically in pain. And what he really wanted was all the emotional, uh, psychological, spiritual, all the weight to be on her to the point that she would just be done with her faith, that she would curse God just like he wanted for Job, Satan wanted for Job, right? Just be like, I'm, I'm done. It's too much. But what Jesus did in that moment is to stop that, to say no more, 
No more. So you're not going to have that influence over this woman anymore. And so the supernatural influence of the devil was removed from her life. And this is the same thing that happens for us when we come to faith. In our sin, all human beings are under negative spiritual influences. This was like the first point, right? We are all in bondage to some degree. Uh, Sometimes it's overt, like we see with this woman. But most of the time, it's more subtle, like the majority of Canadians that find their ultimate hope and peace and life in something other than God. And their lives seem fine, right? The demons don't care. The devil, the devil doesn't care if we're having like this horrible, afflicted life or a peaceful life. All he wants for us is to not have faith in Jesus, for us to die without hope. And so whatever it takes to get us there, that's what he will do. That's, that's the devil's plans for our lives. But here we see Jesus, he interrupts that. And he replaces it with the plans of God for this woman's life, which is to bring healing and hope and redemption. This is what God does when he speaks, when we believe. But the next question I think it's important to ask, does this mean then that everyone who believes in Jesus will be healed physically? Like, is that, is that what we're to take, the lesson we're to take from this? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Yes, everyone will be healed. It's just a matter of time, right? For some, this woman was right away. Praise God. She, she glorified God because the power of God was at work. She was physically made straight. She had other things going on in her life, but there she experienced the power of God in some way. For others, it'll happen later on, maybe as a result of prayer, We've had people in our congregation healed from cancer, healed from certain disabilities through prayer. God answers prayer. He loves to heal. But everyone has the hope of ultimate healing in heaven. Everyone can know whatever's going on in our body, whatever's not working properly, there will be a time coming soon when we will experience the full restoration of our body and our soul and our mind. The challenge, of course, is the in-between. And I know it's easy to say, that this is coming and that we should find hope in it. But this is really the way in which we can make it through this life with all of the things that are going to happen to our bodies, how we're going to degenerate. See, it's all about having the right perspective. So just to give you some perspective, uh, yesterday I did a funeral for uh, a woman who was actually my neighbor growing up. Her name was June Walker. Uh, She was 95 years old uh, when she died. Uh, she was a splendid woman. She was one of the first people who shared the gospel with me and prayed for me, so it was a delight to do her funeral. But for the last eight years, uh, she had uh, Alzheimer's. And so if you have any experience with that, you, you know what that entails. This is a, a horrendous affliction where, where someone begins to lose themselves, where slowly she forgot the people in her life that mattered most to her. She forgot who she was She had no clarity of thought. I mean, there was real suffering for June and real suffering for her family. But see, June knew the Lord. And and so I looked at some of her writings reflecting on her life and all she could do was just praise God for for what he had done and for the hope that she had. So even even when she got to that place of of not being coherent, uh, the hope was there. The effect of God had already been been wrought in her life. And so now think about it this way. She's been dead for about a month. For a month, she's been in the presence of Jesus. For a month, she's, her mind has been crystal clear, right? She's had a total restoration 
of, of everything in her soul, in her mind, in her spirit, her body is yet, is yet to come. But she knows now the full experience of vibrancy of life. And it's only been a month. She's got years, hundreds of thousands of years to go for to enjoy that freedom. This, this is what Jesus does in us and will do for us. The hope of a full restoration is not just something in the future. It begins in us now. Because there are all sorts of ways that we feel still in bondage in this life, right? Paul talks about the, the wretched, wretched man that I am. He's talking about the sin that, that racks him, the patterns of sin, the spiritual attack, the physical things that he's dealing with. But we need to understand, and what we see a picture of here is that there is real freedom in Christ and that Jesus did come to set us free. We have it now in part, but we will have it fully in time. And the glimpse that we get from this woman is meant to encourage us and to inform and transform the way that we're thinking about these struggles. And her response should be ours, right? She, she gives glory to God. I know she, she straightened up and so it was easy to give glory to God, but really she was praising Jesus for what he did in her life. And if you think about it, she was already honoring God. She was gathering and worshiping God even before she was healed. So this is a woman whose heart was sold out for the Lord even before she met Jesus. And all the more now that she had. So this was a very good day. I mean, this was a day when the whole synagogue should have been celebrating. Everyone should have been, that's it. Forget it. We're, we're going to Denny's. We're going to celebrate. Grand slams for everyone. We, this is a day to party. But sadly, that's not how everyone felt. So our last point is this. Our last point is we are called to compassion, but we're going to see uh, in the synagogue rulers that they, they were not very excited about this. So here's, here's verse 14 again. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. So the religious leaders, they hated it when Jesus did this kind of thing, uh, partly because they'd become so focused on the minute details of what constituted work on the Sabbath. That was their whole focus. What is it? Are you doing it? Are you not doing it? Um, they didn't focus at all on what the Sabbath was supposed to be about at the time, which was an opportunity to, to honor God, to find rest in God. The other big problem for them is that they had hearts that had grown very hard towards people in need. They were so focused on what they thought the law of God might require that they totally missed the clear intention of the law, which was to love God and love people. They just, they were totally twisted and, and missed it. And so Jesus exposes their cold, hard hearts when he replies, verse 15, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He's saying, what, what's wrong with you? You have compassion for your animals. Like, you know, they need water and food. You have compassion. You go and do a little bit of work. Then, but this woman comes in and you get angry with her. Tell her it's the wrong day. You got to come on Wednesday to be healed. And even if they had come on Wednesday, they couldn't heal her. It's a total hardness of heart, a, a misunderstanding. They didn't stop to think of this woman at all. They were preoccupied with their own mistaken ideas of what they thought God might want. It's very easy for us to, 
to just be critical of the religious leaders in these kinds of stories, and we should. They're faithless, hard-hearted individuals. They were supposed to be leading people closer to God, but every time they're putting up these stumbling blocks. But if that's all we do, then we miss an opportunity to grow in light of the rebuke of Jesus for these leaders back then. Because if we're honest, I think we would, we would admit that we have these same tendencies in us. These same tendencies towards hard-heartedness, these same tendencies towards a lack of compassion, we just use other excuses. Not many of us are pointing to the law of God and some minute detail and saying, that's why I can't help you. We have other things uh, that we think are important or that we're struggling with. I mean, sometimes we, we notice a need in someone else, but we think to ourselves, you know, I just don't think I'm the right person to say something. I mean, I'm not a counselor. I'm, I'm not a psychologist. Like, I don't, I don't know my Bible. What am I gonna, what am I gonna say? Like, we might see someone uh, who's clearly been crying and we notice them or we notice that someone's quiet in our community group, but we, we just feel like we were gonna make things worse. So we don't say anything. Or sometimes uh, we just, we think, man, I just have so much going on. Like if I start to talk to them, what if it turns into a whole thing and I've got all these things to do today or I've just got so much on my plate right now, I'm not sure I can respond. I mean, I want to, but... And listen, I get it. I mean, frankly, all of us are overscheduled, right? We know that we, we take on too much, but... But can I just point out, there's, there's a difference between like adding a badminton class to your schedule and that being an unwise choice and someone who's in need. Uh, they're two different categories of things. We, we should be thinking about a good sort of balance and rhythm of life. That's, that's healthy. But when it comes to showing love to people, we have to take our cues from, from Jesus, who was not concerned about how much it would cost to show us love or how much energy or time it would take. He gave everything to show us compassion. He had a heart and a mind that, that clearly was looking for those people in need and he reached out, took the time. That, that should be our pattern. Like we should have an expectation that when it comes to, to the people in need in our lives, we should expect to be inconvenienced, like overextended, uh, to be out of our comfort zone where, where we're relying on the spirit of God. We're not quite sure uh, what to do, but we just, we really want to show them love. That, that is how God works through the church in us. And as I was thinking about this, uh, there's something that came to my mind. I've been reading this uh, biography of David Livingston. You know, David Livingston, he's like this famous missionary in Africa. Uh, he came from Scotland and early on in his journey, so when he was just getting to Africa, he, there's this thing that happened. Uh, he, he came by boat. It was like months and months. And then he and another missionary couple, he was by himself, uh, they got to the coast of Africa and their assignment was to go to the uh, most remote uh, mission station in a place called Kuraman. And so to get there, they had to buy a wagon, buy a team of oxen, uh, load it all up, travel for two weeks through the wilderness, and they finally got to this mission statement and uh, station. When they got there, it was pretty incredible. It was like a big house. There was a shop. There was a farm. It was like a sustainable, like you could live there. Um, and it was fairly comfortable. And the missionary couple that he was with, they loved it. They were like, oh, this is fantastic because it, it kind of had all the comforts of home. But also there was, uh, you know, tribes in the area they were doing ministry with, and that was the assignment. They were like, this is, this is going to be great. But David, he had a totally different reaction. I mean, he didn't like it one bit. 
In fact, he was frustrated with the other missionaries because they were so preoccupied with this sense of comfort. And, and he had a word for them. He called them veranda missionaries. He said, there are some missionaries that they have a heart for the gospel. They have a love for people, but they would, they would prefer to do that within the comfort of the veranda, you know, close to home, close to the comforts of life. Then they feel like they can do the work of God. And for him, he was just like, that wasn't what was on the top of his mind. The top of his mind was the fact that to the north, there were hundreds of villages and thousands of people that had never even heard the name of Jesus. And so for him, when he got there, he was just like, oh, it was all he could do just to stay there and sleep in that bed. And, and so he was like a burr in the saddle of everyone there. He's like, we got to go north. We got to go. There's people who haven't heard. He wasn't satisfied just to stay there because his heart of compassion drove him out from comfort. And if you know his story, it was not comfortable at all. Where he went and what he did, he was in peril a lot of, of the time. But the result was that many, many more people came to know Jesus. Many, many more people knew the comfort and love of God. And that, that is the end result when we show compassion. That is what hopefully our hearts are stirred up as we read the story. Because if you look even just at the last uh, verse, verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. They didn't even understand fully what Jesus was doing. They didn't know this was a glimpse of even greater things to come. They just saw God move and they were rejoicing. They were so glad. That is the result that can happen in our lives. If we allow the Lord to use us. The challenge is how to make it happen. Right? How do we, if we have, you know, a, a heart or a mind to some extent to be compassionate, what do we, how do we actually live that way? Well, a couple things. First, you know, it, it must start with a willingness to be used by God. And by willingness, I mean like an intentional, prayerful willingness where we, we actually are asking God, you know, God, I, I do want to be used. I don't just want to get through all the things in the day. Would you help me to, to see those in need and then actually go where the Spirit leads? But I think also we need a willingness to try to actually understand the people around us and what they're going through. Because as I reflected on this scene, you know, I thought to myself, there have been times in my life when I have responded in anger towards someone, but really what they needed was compassion. Like, like the dynamic, there's something they were doing that was making me upset, but if I had stopped, and sort of taking myself out of the equation, what I would have realized is that there was probably a real hurt for that person. And that if I could understand what they were going through, it would be much easier for me to have compassion, to show love, to show grace. Because that's really what, what we need to be loved by God and to experience his presence. So my hope is that for us as a church, just as individuals, that that in the light of passages like this, we will understand ourselves more. We, we are in bondage to some degree, especially before we come to faith, but even after we're afflicted, there's physical challenges, spiritual challenges, and yet we have the freedom already in Christ that we need. We have it in part, it's going to be, come to fruition fully. But during this, this time, we have a comfort, a gospel comfort, that if we take the time, 
and we open our hearts both to the Spirit of God and the people around us, we, we can actually do good work where people will be drawn near to the Lord and we'll have the joy of, of being a part of it. So that's what I'm going to pray for us, that that good work happens in us by the power of God and we, and we get the joy of seeing it happen. So let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, I pray for those here and those in our congregation that really are suffering physically, Lord. There are, are many, I know, who have chronic illnesses, who have recent diagnosis, who are, um, are struggling with, with real pain every day and real discomfort and, and just the, the wearying uh, task of going to multiple appointments and trying out different medications and all, all those things, Lord, it can weigh on our soul. And so I pray, please, that you would bring comfort. Lord, I do pray for healing. You are a God who heals. And so I pray for more of that in our midst, that you would move and bring healing and we'd be able to tell that story and honor you for that healing. But I pray ultimately that each one would have peace and comfort this day to know that you know them, you, you notice them, you're with them. And your promise is to bring full and final restoration in your good time. And I pray for all of us, Lord, for those areas where we feel afflicted, where we feel, feel maybe trapped in patterns of sin and, and whatever it might be, Lord, would you, would you remind us that you are a God who brings freedom and that that freedom actually is the, is the main thing that we need. And so I pray that we would experience that anew. I pray, Lord, that that would motivate us to, to really show love and compassion to the people around us, help us to be mindful of the opportunities that are there and to understand each other well, to see those times where, we, where a sharp word is not what is needed, but, but rather a soft word, um, that we can extend grace and love to the people in our lives. So please help us with that, Lord. Help us to war against our own sin, our own selfishness. And I pray in this you would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen.